This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. It's been 16 years since the 9-11 terrorist attack in the United States. Uh, the president and first lady observed a moment of silence at the White House uh, and at the Pentagon. Do people remember this day? Is it? Is I remember the first couple of day or the first couple of years after 9-11. It was one of those uh, anniversaries where people were a little apprehensive. People were a little scared. They were always worried there was going to be some sort of backlash or some sort of uh, incident uh, similar to what happened on 9-11 on its anniversary. I think that's kind of subsided. I don't think people are, are feeling as apprehensive as they were uh, or jittery as they were on, on past anniversaries. But, but do people still remember it? Again, hard to believe, 16 years ago. Uh, joining us now, crime specialist Ross McLean, rossmcleansecurity.com. Uh, to find out more, you can uh, read his uh, Facebook page, Crime, Power, and Politics, as well. He is with us now. Hello, Ross. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Well, that's a, actually, I think it's a very important day to take the time to join you to talk about the events of 9-11, Scott. What do you think? It's 16 years ago. It's hard to believe. Do people still remember? Do they choose to forget it? Remember the anniversaries, as I mentioned in the preamble, the anniversary, whenever it would come around, people would be a little apprehensive. Do you think we still feel that way? I don't think that people feel as apprehensive because there's been such major gains and changes in the way uh, security is conducted around all of those sort of things that people feel uh, not as vulnerable as we did uh, at the time of 9-11. I mean, at the time when it happened, it was shocking. No one could believe it could have happened or would have thought it would have happened, and it could have happened in such a spectacular way in, in you know, the biggest city in the world, really, for that to happen. So it was certainly a shock, but we've come a long way since then, Scott. How has life changed post-9-11? Well, it's changed a lot. Certainly, you know, on that day, I, I actually remember, and, and everybody's got a story that I know of yep. uh, about 9-11. They, they know someone who was there. They talked to someone who was there. They lost someone who was there or something happened. Certainly for me at the time, Scott, I was working for a global Fortune 50 technology company, and it so happened on that day, we were having a worldwide meeting of all of our executive and presidents in California. So when, that, when those planes went into the tower, where I'm, I'm at our head office here. We had every one of our executives up in the air. And, uh, you know, the chase was on to find out what was happening, where people were, because, of course, the next thing that happened was the, the closing of the U.S. airspace. Yep. Right? Which, and look at how uh, Gander Newfoundland stepped up for that. Mm-hmm. The things that they did there. And, and it was closed for about four or five days, was it not? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, was, it, was, it was quite a few days. In fact, you know, once again, I had another consultant that I knew was right across the river down from the building. She was working on the new giant stadium that was going in. She's standing there. And as I was talking to her on her cell phone, she was telling me she's looking at the towers and one of them went down as she was looking at them, you know, and she's telling me, just call my kids and let them know I'm okay. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, go grab a rental car and start driving. I said, because you're not going to get in the air. Yeah. So uh, it, there's really quite a bit of impact for those who remember it. I don't think we like to talk about the the horror of it or share it so much, but there's a lot of people bearing the scars of it, Scott. Uh, and, and, of course, it, it literally changed the way we fly. I mean, I, as you said, obviously everything was grounded for, for several days afterwards, but then after that, the restrictions and guidelines and this, that, and the other, I mean, it literally changed the industry, didn't it? Yeah, everything from cockpit security was changed so that people couldn't get into the cockpits as easily, to the searches of people as they went to go on planes, to, as we still talk about to this day, a lot of the pre-boarding security requirements that go in, the no-fly lists, uh, and the cooperation between other countries. 
I mean, there's certainly been just a multitude of changes that goes on. But as I said, there's there's been a lot that's picked up, too, in terms of emergency management and response. I mean, you can go now to university and to colleges, and you can get you can get degrees and certificates and how to manage these sort of things and deal with them better. You know, we're sort of seeing that sort of educational response for the hurricanes down in the States. So I think we're a lot better off, but it was a terrible reason to have to get better at that skill set. Uh as a result, it is obvious. Well, I'll ask you: Is it how, how difficult is it to penetrate air security now? We've virtually uh, seen a stop to the activities that we've seen uh, that we saw on nine eleven. Uh, ha- have we solved that problem? H- how on guard do we still have to be? It's it's an ongoing problem. I mean, what nine eleven uh, triggered off was obviously airline security, also a problem for signature buildings or landmarks. They were worried about becoming targets themselves for similar attacks or, or different attacks. But to this day, uh, you'll still have the Homeland Security chief in the U.S. He says that, look, at getting an airline is the big prize that the terrorists want. That's why we've led to those electronics not being allowed onto the planes and all of those sort of issues. So it's still evolving. I mean, planes now have to worry about, and airports also have to worry about drone attacks, which is like a miniature version, you know, of, a, of an aerial attack, if you will. They've, they had one happen in the U.S. airbase over in Turkey where someone was trying to fly a drone into a jet engine. Hmm. So, you know, these are all the sort of things. So it's an evolving, it's an evolving threat that they have to keep ahead of, and uh, they've been pretty good at it so far. Well, we've certainly seen the attacks become more primitive since 9-11. I mean, you know, this past year, this past summer, with with people just jumping in vehicles and and using those as weapons and and going after soft targets. So uh, at the end of the day, what creates more terror? Something that we saw in the mass uh, size and scope of a 9-11 attack or the fear that virtually anybody with a vehicle could be doing this? Well, two different levels of fear, aren't they? I mean, certainly it's it's a bigger thing if you think a plane can be flown into a major building and kill, you know, 3,000 people at one time and all of those responders, as opposed to a, a low-tech terror attack with a truck that, you know, goes to get, you know, into the double digits of people that it can kill. I mean, it, it's a different scale. Uh, but, you know, I even see today that the uh, the London police have said that they're going to start using a new version of a spike strip. It looks like a spike strip you certainly you normally see in car chases, but it's also followed by a big web of netting, of plastic netting, so that it'll stop the tires, it'll deflate the tires, and then wrap up the wheels and the axles, and it claims it'll be able to bring right. these trucks to stop, and they're going to start deploying those whenever there's large public events. So. Uh, do you think law enforcement officials, governments look at today from a security standpoint different? How on edge are, are officials or people like Homeland Security, do you think, today? Well, po- uh, police and law enforcement actually got started getting a lot more involved in the private security measures that went forward. They would be, be more involved in protecting landmarks. I mean, certainly one of the key places you can see that is actually in New York City. You know, now it's it's you, you will see their anti-terrorist squad that's out there all the time, and they're showing the flag to let people know you're safe in New York City, and if something happens, uh, they will deal with it right away. So law enforcement has become uh, much more the front line, and I, I told you this is something that worried me a bit in the past, Scott, but they've become the front line in the war on terror, so you get into this issue of police having to learn, you know, more or less military training as well to be able to deal with terrorists. It's not the same. Taking a life isn't the same as trying to save a life.
Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, uh, rossmcleansecurity.com. Check out the Facebook page, Crime Power and Politics. Ross, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. All right, let's bring in uh, Dr. Anthony Neal, Department of Political Science, Buffalo State College. He is with us now. Get a U.S. perspective on this. Hello, Anthony. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. So uh, what is this anniversary like today in your country? Uh, We were speaking earlier. I remember uh, the first anniversary, the second anniversary of 9-11. People were were anxious. They were a little uneasy thinking there might be a copycat attack or or some sort of uh, attack on the day. Has that subsided? What's life like now when this anniversary comes around? We still have that uh, uneasiness, that fear that because... As you know, there's still uh, terror attacks that take place. And particularly, uh, I heard you mention the low-tech attack, which can almost pop up anywhere. So therefore, there is a bit of uneasiness and copycat in, in that respect. But now, as as time moves on, it becomes uh, more of a somber remembrance in terms of actually uh, what happened on that particular day. Is it a day to remember, or is it one you find most would rather forget? How important is it we do remember? I think it's important to remember, just as it uh, was still important all these years later, or decades later, to remember Pearl Harbor, because mm. the, the magnitude of the attack uh, that happened on a civilian population is is astounding. So therefore, you, you can't forget, and you can't forget because you can't let your guard down to try to uh, stop anything like that from happening in the future. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, a busy news weekend with weather and 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 the hurricane and such. Has this this taken people's minds off this? Is it still front and center? Do you think today? I would say leading up to it, as, as you're so correctly stated, there's been an awful lot of noise, an awful lot of noise in regards to Hurricane Harvey, and you see the human suffering in regards to that, the human suffering in the Caribbean, uh, the human suffering in Florida as it related to Irma. And prior to that, we were constantly on edge about uh, what's happening in North Korea and the threat of a uh, nuclear war. So it's been a a great deal of noise. And yet, today, uh, people are able, are able to turn their attention quietly to remember what happened on 9-11. What about the president's reaction? Um, Obviously, as you've mentioned, there has, there's been no mention of those other things uh, at this point. Um, Your thoughts on his reaction to this? In my opinion, the typical uh, presidential reaction, I I think if if an American president can't quite get this remembrance right, then they definitely should not be president. But uh, to me, it's typical, nothing major. And there again, I think uh, because of all the noise that's been around us and still all the noise that's surrounding his administration, it's a, a more of a low-key response, which is necessary. You brought up things like North Korea. Obviously, uh, President Trump's uh, presidency to date has been quali- quite tumultuous. Uh, are, are people feeling secure in the United States? 
uh, in my opinion, people are on edge, on edge because of external forces and on edge because of an uncertainty in regards to the political leadership that we currently have. And I say that in, in, in a sense, not simply looking at Democrats, Republicans and conservatives and liberals. I, I think there's an uneasiness across the board, aside from those hardcore uh, supporters of the president who will say the president can do no wrong. Uh, even members of the Republican Party feel this type of uneasiness because of an uncertainty or instability on how the president will react. Or And also, we're not certain about what the president wants in, in, in foreign policy. It, it changes, it flips, it flops, and, and that adds to the uneasiness. Uh, the one positive thing out of the tragedy of 9-11, it seemed to unite the United States, certainly in any, in any time that, that I've ever seen in my lifetime anyway. Um, and, and everybody was pretty much on the same page that day. Uh, is the U.S. still as united? Does an anniversary like this bring everyone back together? Fortunately for that moment... Unfortunately, that moment passes. But during that moment, it's, it's nice for people to step back and step out of roles and step out of wardrobe, and step out of uniform and, and truly look at one another as, as an individual. Uh, and hopefully we can expand upon that. And I, I would like to say if that's the good that came out of 9-11, but the bad that has come out of it, of course, we've been in perpetual war since that day. Uh, I think in Afghanistan, for the United States, at least the longest military engagement in our history, and it's no end in sight based on, I think the president is about to uh, increase or step up our engagement in Afghanistan. And this has been the backdrop there. We have a, a generation of teenagers that that's all they've known. It's war in Afghanistan. Will, are we wrong to think that, uh, you, you know, it seems uh, one, one leader will, will, will bring people to war, uh, the next leader will try to bring them home and, and solve the issue. Are we wrong to think that we can go in and out of these pockets in the world and, uh, and, and, and fix the problem and leave, uh, and leave the vacuum without expecting hell to be created afterwards? Uh, at the end of the day, is that what this is about, is these sort of really long, long missions that, that may never end? I think we, we try to live in, a, in an age of using World War II as an analogy, where you go in, fight the war, defeat the enemy, you rebuild, and you move on, and those states that you have to rebuild are able to carry on on their own. It seems like that analogy does not apply to many of the wars that we engage in today. But there are positive spots. Uh, for example, Vietnam was a very tumultuous war. But we went in, fought the Vietnamese, they fought us, and now uh, the United States has the most favorite nation status with Vietnam, there's trade, hmm. there are relationships, uh, and Vietnam is essentially trying to pick up the pieces and move on. So it is possible, it is possible to fight these wars and create a stability in the country in which we fight these wars. 
However, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Uh, everybody remembers where they were when they heard of uh, the tragedy of 9-11. I also remember very vividly watching the capture or the news coverage of uh, the capture of Osama bin Laden. How important was that in this discussion? Was it as big as the event itself? I believe it was. The, the unfortunate part about what happened when President Obama announced the the I guess the killing of Osama bin Laden in uh, crowds of people gathered outside the White House chanting USA. Unfortunately, at that time, because of the anti-Obama mystique, many on the right tried to downplay it and just poo-poo it as not that significant. There's no major issue. But I recall prior to bin Laden being captured or or killed, it was it was a major issue, a major story. That's all I heard about in terms of administration still in the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And then when he was finally caught, uh, they tried to act like it was nothing major. I remember Donald Rumsfeld in particular essentially downplaying it, and I thought that was quite disingenuous on the part of the former administration officials to downplay it in, in that respect. We talked earlier of how events like this can unite a country. Obviously, the U.S. uh, at a very divisive point, certainly the most divisive I can remember in a long time. Um, How do you unite a country without having to go through a tragedy like this? That is an excellent question. We should not have to go through a tragedy to unite. But on the other hand, uh, aside from 9-11, maybe that's... That's a man-made or man-manufactured tragedy. These natural calamities with the hurricanes seem to be bringing out the best in some people as well. Mm. So therein lies the possibility of something. There's something to build upon, and not only something to build upon, but it reminds us that there's something there uh, beyond our divisions. And if we could just bring that to the forefront and put the divisions behind us, I think. We can move on in a positive light. Well said. Dr. Anthony Neal has been with us, Department of Political Science, Buffalo State College. Anthony, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As uh, we've been just talking to Dan Malik, health sciences professor at Brock University, and as well... Uh, announcement earlier on, uh, well, I guess it was late last week, that uh, the LCBO would be charged with uh, the distribution system for recreational marijuana when it becomes available uh, next summer. And, of course, the union tapped to represent the workers within the cannabis stores say that members will be trained and ready to go by the time of launch next July. To talk more about all of this, Warren Smokey Thomas is with us, president of OPSU. He's with us now. Hello, Warren Smokey Thomas. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Always appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, no, thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Uh, so, Smokey, how long have you guys been in discussions about this? Uh, how long have you seen this coming down the river? Not long. We were. Uh, I've been publicly advocating it for quite some time, uh, for the last year or so, uh, ever since Trudeau announced he was going to legalize it. Uh, actually, what really, I just got a call. Uh, the government, uh, some deputy ministers wanted to brief me on something, so I took a couple of people uh, Thursday, went to a briefing, 
And uh, we were told uh, they're going to be in the LCBO stores. We had some details, but I learned more through the media, actually. Uh, and, uh, well, we're obviously quite pleased, And uh, but we also think they made a very prudent decision. Now, there's a whole lot more to figure out and a whole lot more to discuss, and a lot, you know, there's still a tremendous amount of work to do before it actually gets sold legally. So, but uh, I think we're up to the task. So you really just got confirmation of all this last week, last Thursday. Yeah, on Thursday morning, yeah. So what was your reaction? Were you surprised? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Um, I, I stifled theirs to jump up and down and cheer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on behalf of uh, good unionized jobs with, uh, you know, decent wages and benefits and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't totally surprised. A lot of groups, I mean, uh, a lot of social justice groups, medical groups, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, Arrive Alive, Students Against Drunk Driving. Uh, we represent workers at CAMH. Uh, we represent workers all throughout the addiction industry, and they've all been advocating for some sort of government-controlled system. And, of course, with our position that uh, they also be able to run it would just make sense because they no point in reinventing the wheel. So it, it, there's a whole lot of people were for that type of system. Now, there are some people uh, don't like the decision, but uh, but it is what it is, and uh, we'll make the best of it. Um, some think it's a little ironic that as we're winding down beer and wine stores, not winding down, but certainly creating more options for beer and wine sales in grocery stores, that now we're creating another monopoly for recreational marijuana, uh, especially during the neat recent contract negotiations that you guys just sealed off uh, earlier on in the summer. Did any of this play a factor into this, knowing that down the road you guys would get this? Uh, well, we never knew we were going to get it until last Thursday, but we did bargain a clause in the collective agreement that if the LCBO was tapped to uh, to be the retailer and the wholesaler, that uh, uh, OPSU members would uh, would do that work. Now, it's going to be a separate system. Uh, you know, they're not going to co-locate, which we actually support that too, um, but they, they will be OPSU members and the LCBO will, um, will uh, set that system up and We'll uh, certainly do everything we can to help them get it ready. And uh, to uh, I've already I've over the past year or so I've met I've sat on a couple of conferences around uh, the old cannabis conference in Toronto, for example. And my part of the panel was the intersect between labor and uh, employers and unions and what's going to happen once it's legalized. You know what constitutes impaired, what occupations could would you consider that no TAC in the system? So there's as I say, a whole host of issues. So if we can uh, break some of that ground in the LCBO through setting the system up and help come up with some some answers, maybe not the final answers, but certainly some uh, common grounds, I think that would help all employers everywhere. And, of course, we'll share all our information with other unions if they're interested. So uh, how difficult a task is this for your people, Smokey, to have all this thing up and running by the summer? Well, I don't think it's that difficult. Like people say, oh, they got to learn all the different strains and everything else. Well, I'll tell you something. There are a lot more products on the shelves of a, of a full-size LCBO than there will be cannabis products in a, in a, in a, in a store. So uh, it's a matter of teaching people. The LCBO already does 500,000 product testings a year. It's a matter of uh, teaching some people on, uh, on staff to test cannabis. Like It's just a different kind of test, but mm-hmm. the principles of testing are pretty much the same. So I don't think it's that difficult. It's a, it's a lot of work. There's no doubt about that. But if they put their proper people at the table to do it, and I have met the deputy minister who sort of spearheads, and I have a lot of confidence in her. She really seems to be very knowledgeable. And, 
And as I say, we'll certainly help them do everything we can to make sure uh, you know the workers are ready, willing, and able to uh, to go. You talked about these two, and it's been it's been widely known that uh, they don't want this sold in LCBO stores. That these will be two totally separate. Uh, 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 units, which, you know, uh, completely makes sense for you, that you guys would be happy because, you know, it's obviously uh, more infrastructure, more staff, more everything. Um, that being said, it, what is the what is the crossover? Like, can you cross over staff? Will you be able to do that? Uh, if one works for one, does that mean they're qualified to work for the other? How do you separate that sort of thing? Uh, well, I think it would go sort of like this. There would be job descriptions, and in those job descriptions would be details, knowledge requirements, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So just as if a member who, you know, an LCBO, current LCBO employee wants to work in this system, they would have to learn that product line, all that kind of stuff, and vice versa. If somebody started out in the uh, cannabis side and then, you know, down the road a bit, thought, well, oh, gee, I'd like to apply for a vacancy on the uh, on the, on the LCBO side, like in, in, in alcohol instead of uh, cannabis, They'd have to demonstrate that they meet the basic requirements for the job. So there are all things that unions negotiate with employers in contract language that employers come up with in uh, their, uh, you know, procedures, uh, qualifications, things they need in an employee. And that's where the employers got some work to do. And uh, but the LCBO, I mean, as I say, what they need to do now, and I, I, I suspect they've probably been doing some of this. So I know they've been working on the file just in case because the government told them to, you know, think about it. So I think that they, that all those sorts of things can be sorted out in fairly short order, and uh, um, and again, uh, and if I might add, uh, I've heard some workers in dispensaries say, "Well, I just got put out of a job." Well, not necessarily. Why wouldn't you apply for a job in the uh, in the cannabis side of the LCBO? You got mm-hmm. you know a whole bunch of stuff going for you, and I can guarantee you'd be a better paying job with benefits. So, uh, to all those people working in uh, dispensaries right now which are, in theory, medical, um, you know, throw your name in the in the mix. They're going to be uh, hiring. So, I mean, this is, we will create some uh, legal jobs for people, and uh, and it'll grow over time. But there's, um, in, in the number of stores, and I, I think uh, one thing I like is uh, we, uh, you know, my position, our position has always been sort of err on the side of caution because we don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. It's easier to make it looser than it is to make it too loose and ratchet it back, if you know what I mean. Yep. So, and I think the final decision, I mean, the government, this is an announcement by the government on the number of stores to have up and running July 1st. That That's an, uh, an announcement. Um, that don't mean that that number couldn't go up between now and then if they get things rolling. They find suitable locations, willing locations, because they have to speak to municipalities about opening these stores. So, and I think if they wanted to shoot for 60 or 70 stores, we'd do everything in our power to absolutely, you know, have the workers work with managers to, to get it all ready, to get it going, and, uh, and, to, and to have it up and running for July. So, Smokey, would the LCBO members be under the same contract umbrella as the people that would be working in the marijuana stores? Would they be separate contracts? No, my understanding is the government is viewing it as a separate entity run by the LCBO but represented by officer workers. Right. So that's sort of to be determined. I'm not 100% sure what that will look like. Uh, but we would, uh, um, in initial discussions with the government, I said, well, how about crossover? Because uh, you do have some very experienced people in the LCBO whose experience you could really use in starting up something new. Like just members who have worked in opening brand new stores, they understand how to open it up, how to get everything going, you know, so there's right. skill sets. So they were very anxious to have 
reciprocity, if you will. But uh, I'm not. I, my understanding is the government is looking for it to be a separate contract. And uh, if that's the case, then well, they run the business, so it would be kind of like their decision, not ours. Have they given you any sort of hint, Smokey, at what these outlets will look like? You know, we were. I, I was talking earlier to a professor. We were talking about the old days of alcohol distribution. You know, where you, you know, I remember going in with my dad to the LCBO, and you'd have to fill out a pad of paper and then hand it to a guy behind yeah. the counter, and then he went in the back and got your thing in a bag. And do, any idea what this is going to be like? What the experience will be like? I don't think they're looking to glamorize it very much. Um, I think the experience, so, and that was part of uh, one of the things they actually said were, was open for discussion. Because, uh, again, our members do marketing, do all that kind of stuff for the LCBO. So I think that's why they want to create a working group. And I don't know that they've thought all that stuff through yet. Uh, my sense of it is, to be honest with you, on a personal level, I've never been real uh, thrilled with glamorizing alcohol because if you've ever been into a bar at 8 o'clock in the morning, you understand why it's not very glamorous. But uh, same here, I think you need to advertise it, but I don't think they should glamorize it because it is a, a drug, right? And I even mm-hmm. kind of worry about the term recreational marijuana. It kind of denotes something here that it, it's a it's a drug, right, and can have uh, uh, dire consequences if it's abused like anything else. So I'm not quite sure. Uh, I've asked the government... Um, uh, if if we could strike a working group sooner rather than later, and uh, they said yes to that, so I'm I'm just waiting for some of the logistics of that. I did meet the premier last Thursday. Uh, what time did I meet her? Right after the deputy ministers told me about the uh, about this, but we had a, a long list of things to discuss. My members do everything from A to Z in the public service, so I had a lot of uh, a lot of uh, issues to discuss with her, but. I just touched on this one briefly, and she liked the idea of a working group. I've also been, uh, when I was on these uh, panels at the old cannabis conference and that, been trying to find an employer somewhere to sit down and maybe let's start talking about what, what, what are the issues labor and employers are going to face. You know, we could spend years in litigation, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on lawyers fighting. You know, they fire somebody somewhere uh, because they're impaired with cannabis well what is the benchmark so mm-hmm. these are some things that like for all employers out there that i think people need to think about i'd truly like to uh, sit down with somebody in my union i'm the boss as well we employ over 350 people who work directly for the union like i'm for the members and uh, we uh, a few months back started covering medical cannabis for our employees up to three thousand dollars a year and it wasn't that simple but we figured it out with the insurance carrier, and we've got to figure it out. So, and I've brought in uh, uh, cannabis experts uh, and a variety of just about everything you can imagine and think about the issues around it. Met with our senior management team. I've met with uh, two different people, had very lengthy discussions. I learned a lot. Let me tell you something. When I used to say, we don't know what we don't know, man, I didn't know a lot. So mm. I suspect there's a lot of things to learn here. And this isn't. Uh, and all these things will uh, will enable it to be sold legally. Uh, will enable it, and I, I am a very strong advocate of not making it too expensive, but making uh, the government's got to make something of it eh, to pay for the nuts and bolts. But to uh, I'd like to see them put some of the profits directly into addiction services and research on the medical cannabis side. I think medical cannabis has a tremendous, tremendous uh, future in terms of. Uh, uh, the good stuff. Now, Smokey, kind of will will the LCBO be distributing medical, or is it just recreational? 
right now, no, medical will stay the, the way it is. The way it is. And, yeah, and actually, I learned a lot about that system. I don't think it's broken. I think it works pretty well. Uh, people are figuring it out more and more. It's getting tougher to get a card. you actually got to see a doctor and, you know, and do all those things. But I do know, uh, since I've been involved in the discussion, I have had literally hundreds of members ask me, call me up, and they think it's for them too, but it's not for our staff. Mm. But uh, they, you know, then I have chats with them about the, the benefits of medical cannabis for back pain. They got off opioids. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's great yeah. for PTSD, MS. So, um, uh, no, but it, it's um, it's a whole new world for us, right? And so, what's next for you, Smokey? I mean, you got this timeline in next July. What, what's what's on your short list of things to do? Get a table with the employer and start a to do list, and uh, I want to see their to do list, and then I will put. I will staff up uh, that table with um, with uh, qualified people to sit down and to start talking about what it looks like, what do we need to do, uh, how can we support you in, in uh, getting a workforce up and ready. I mean, they do the hiring. We don't. They mm-hmm. hire, we represent. and that, But that's why I say to people who are to work in the industry, throw your name in. Why not? You know what I mean? They've got to hire people. That was another question. People are uh, getting emails from people, where do I apply? Are, well, I mean, are you guys on a mass hiring, or will they be on a mass hiring now? No, the the province will, and yeah. that'll be, and that's some of the unanswered questions, right? So what I've asked, uh, and uh, uh, and again, uh, you know, a lot of these things are up to the government to do. I'll certainly encourage them to be very public, and uh, that they when they uh, and I do know the people that work on the labor relations side. Uh, uh, I know some of those people because I've known them for years because they're labor. You know, I'm labor. They're management. But they've got some very talented people there and who know what they're doing. So when it comes to uh, that side of it, once they get the green light to go set something up, I expect it will happen fairly quickly. And it's obvious to me that they've been thinking about this for quite some time inside government. I mean, this touches just about every ministry going has something to say about legalizing this, from solicitor general to courts to mm-hmm. fines to, you know, all those sorts yeah. of things. So they got a lot more work to do than I do, if you know what I mean. So. Uh, do we know what this is going to be called yet? Like LCBO is what it is. Is this CCBO? Some have suggested yeah, that. Do we know? No, they don't have a name. I, I, uh, I always liked the Liquor Cannabis Control Board of Ontario, but it's going to be separate, so it'll be right. up to the government to pick a name. But uh, um, I, I don't know what they'll call it. Actually, I would suspect... Uh, Cannabis Control Board of Ontario would be a really good name. Why wouldn't it? That's what it is. Uh, any idea, uh, like, how educated your staff are going to have to become on this? I mean, because they're going to have to learn product lines. Yeah. Are, are there different product lines? Do you know how oh, many? Yeah, no, di- do you know how many different product lines they'll have to learn? Uh, a- and how will that? And how will that be displayed in a store? Yeah. Well, this is all questions that the government has to answer, right? Yeah. If they don't want to glamorize it, then I mean, in in Nevada, for example, <laughs> I have an old friend who told me uh, that she went into. Well, her son told me that you know, mom went into the new dispensary there and bought uh, cannabis butter. I'd never heard of cannabis butter before, and he mm. said, "Mom, you want to be careful with that." I mean, I'm 65; she's almost 70, so there, uh, it, it's it's out there. Uh, I don't think the government's going to sell, uh, 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 you know, like products, right? You know, yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. So I do know there's several strains and strengths, and of course, different, uh, uh, you know, sort of, it's been grown over years into different varieties. So again, that's a process of sitting down, 
I mean, uh, our MLCVO members, you know, they probably know everything there is in about 50 different brands of wine, mm-hmm. you know, dozens of brands of beer, you know, whiskey, vodkas, everything, right? So yeah. you ask them, they can. So it's simply a matter of learning it and, and finding somebody. Uh, and I do know there are people out there that know the stuff inside out and are actually been out actively engaging in uh, setting themselves up as consultants to do training, to do teaching, because uh, I know I've hired a couple of them already for our folks. So, Smokey, you've been doing this an awful long time. Did you ever think you'd see the day where you'd be doing this? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Times have changed. Yes, no, I don't even smoke the stuff or use it, but uh, apparently a lot of other people like it, so there you go. All right, uh, my favorite union leader, Warren Smokey Thomas, has been with us, president of OPSU, the union tap to represent the workers within uh, the LCBO that will be running the cannabis stores. they got a big job ahead of them uh, to get all prepared uh, by next summer when the government, federal government announces or has announced it will be uh, legal recreationally. Warren, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Last week, researchers have found a test model of the iconic Avro Aero fighter jet. What is that, you ask? Uh, We'll talk to John Brzezinski. He is the CEO of a Cisco Mining and Expedition lead on Raise the Arrow and is with us now. Hello, John. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Explain to us what Raise the Arrow is. Raise the Arrow is a project to uh, find and and retrieve the nine pre-flight models that were part of the Avro Aero testing program. It was really the, the, the last design work that they did. They had to find a way to do it uh, outside of, of you know, we have modern ways of using computers and, and big wind tunnels these days that they didn't have in the 50s. So what they did was they strapped these free flight models. They were about 12 feet long by 6 feet wide, weighed about 500 pounds. They were, uh, in the later stages, exact replicas of the Avro Aero flying planes. And they finalized the design which led them to the production of the planes. So how long has Raise the Arrow been around? How long have you been working on this? We started the program uh, approximately a year ago, and uh, it took us a while to get the permits from the Ontario government. Uh, of course, you need a permit to do everything these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, once we had the permit, it was green light. Uh, we organized the teams. Uh, the whole project has been uh, sponsored by uh, corporate groups from downtown Toronto. Uh, We put together uh, a search team with Kraken Sonar, the same group that worked on the Franklin Expedition uh, a couple Mm. of years ago up north to find the Erebus and the Terror. Uh, Got an archaeologist, and and we got on the water in late uh, late July. Okay, here's the big question. Why? These were iconic pieces of of Canadian aviation history. Uh, You know, there, there were a lot of people who were thrown out of work when the program was suddenly ended in 1959. Uh, certainly here in Toronto, there were about 15,000 people that were out of work the next day, then another 15,000 people who were associated with the program. So, you know, 30,000 people waking up one day finding they had no jobs. Uh, it was the third largest industry in Canada at the time. And more so than that, this group of people had worked for about seven years to develop what was a, a jet fighter that was 20 years ahead of its time and could have probably led to Canada being at the forefront of the aviation business mm. at the time. And, you know, really, I think that's what sticks in the mind of a lot of Canadians is, you know, first of all, why the program was, was cancelled, but then, secondly, the way that they cancelled it, it was like they were trying to erase that it, it, it ever existed. Uh, give us a little bit more history on the Avro Arrow, because this was something that Canadians were very proud of. As you mentioned, uh, the third biggest industry in Canada, this was very much trend-setting, cutting edge for its time. Tell us about this plane. Tell us about its story. 
the Avril was developed as, as, of course, part of the the Cold War. Uh, Canada at the time, like like a lot of other countries, uh, were worried about the Russians, and they were trying to develop an interceptor uh, against Russian bombers. Uh, ultimately, the the reason given for the cancellation of the program was that uh, you know, the, the Russians had put Sputnik up in the space, and people were now starting to think about uh, ICBMs, intercontinental uh, missiles. Uh, so Canada instead decided to go with the Bomart missile, uh, which of course was manufactured by the Americans. Now, there, there are lots of uh, documentaries and books and, and things that have been written regarding why the, the program was cancelled. I don't think anyone really knows other than it was probably budgetary, uh, but certainly I think a lot of people feel it was a very short-sighted decision on the government's part. And as a result, the, the, those 30,000 people who ended up unemployed, large number of the, of the highly skilled engineers went down to work for companies like Boeing and Lockheed mm. and eventually NASA, and they were the ones who put the man on the moon. How long were they working on the Avro Arrow before it was cancelled? The program ended in uh, early 1959. Uh, it was uh, the idea was originated in the early 50s, and then went through the design phase, and then ultimately the the testing of the scale models or one-eighth scale models is what what we're searching for, uh, which were, were part of the final design work that was done between 1954 and 1957. Uh, then they went straight from those last models to the planes. Of course, when the planes uh, when, the, when the program was cancelled, the planes were destroyed. The machines that made the planes were destroyed. The records were destroyed. So, so there is no important. there is no plane at all. These are models. No, that's right. These yeah. are models. They're one eighth scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a nose cone and a few wingtips in uh, in Ottawa. But you know the, the the plane itself was destroyed, and so all we have is the the pieces uh, from the the beginning of the program. If this was something that wasn't needed, and again, you know, you can talk about the missile program, you can talk about budgetary constraints, or just the politics of the day. Um, if this was not needed, if it wasn't so advanced, why was everything destroyed? You know, it's a question that I don't think anyone's been able to answer. Uh, We're we're explorers. Our our whole project is based on finding and recovering these planes. We're we're not trying to rewrite the history of the Arrow as Mm. part of the project. Uh, I think if you read a lot of the contemporary uh, historical accounts and and people who try to explain it, uh, it's some combination about uh, the the secretness of the program. Uh, They had developed something that was uh, highly sensitive in terms of its ability to, to change someone's air power. And when the Canadian government decided they didn't need it, uh, I guess that, that was probably the decision they made to, to destroy the actual jets. Do you think they realized at the time that they were perhaps crippling an entire industry? Where would the Canadian avi- avi- aviation industry be today if this had succeeded? Good question, and I think that's what bothers people the most. Uh, you know, Certainly in my business in mining, uh, from, from a discovery to a producing mine usually takes between 7 and 15 years. And it's all capital infusion at the beginning before you make your first dollar seven or 15 years later. Uh, the Avro program was a lot like that. It cost uh, about $400 million of, of 1950s dollars. So it, it was becoming a very expensive item. Uh, but really, you, you, when you're starting a new business or, or, or new technology, it takes a lot of capital infusion. And you know, I, I think that was the point, was that it was short-sightedness on the, on the part of the government uh, to not uh, see it further, further along the way. Today, would this, if this was happening today, would they bring private industry on board? Uh, did that sort of thing ever happen back in the day? Do you know, it, if, yeah, finan- if finance is, is a worry? Yeah, I mean, this was, Avro, of course, was a private company. Right. Uh, you know, they, they developed uh, and, and things like the Mosquito and the Lancaster Bomber, and, and they, they pr- produced a huge number of planes during the Second World War. 
they produced jetliners uh, following the war, and, and then were working on developing the Arrow and other other, uh, other flying flying vehicles. Uh, so you know, it, it was a cooperation between the government and a private uh, private company. Uh, we do have modern day examples, things like Bombardier. You know, they're often in the news uh, in terms of people looking at, at whether uh, public funds should go on to continue funding it. Uh, but it, it's the same kind of present-day uh, parallel to what happened with the Arrow. I think it it takes a while to establish a, a real business. And you know, if we have the intent on, on being world leaders in anything, it's, it, it takes some investment to get there. Hmm. Uh, so what exactly are you looking for? How many of these models are out there? There are nine in the lake that we're certain of. Uh, what we've discovered through the, the course of the program uh, is that there are other models that, that they fired into the lake at the beginning to test the rockets. Uh, they had issues in terms of tracking them initially, so they, they fired some more test models into the lake in the middle of the program. So ultimately, there may be as many as sort of a, a dozen or, or 15 of them. Really? Uh, and and they are one-eighth models, so sorry, how long? How many feet long would they be? They're about 12 feet long by uh, 10 feet wide. And each one of them was made of a composite of, of uh, magnesium titanium alloys. Uh, some were stainless steel, and uh, they each weighed about 500 pounds. So obviously, these are all different, all used to test different things. That's right. It was a progressive series. Uh, they refined the design as they went along, and, and the final wing design uh, that they used to go to the production line on the, the six flying Avro arrows was based on the, those final models. How many were built? Six. Uh, there were six that, that flew. Uh, I think they had a couple more on the floor when they canceled the program, but there were six that were rolled off the line and, and actually flew. And what can you tell us about these actual tests? What happened? Where did they happen? Were they top secret at the time? Very top secret at the time. It's uh, you know the, the more research we do on this project, the more uh, interesting it becomes. Uh, there, there was a, a secret test unit based out of Alcarchi, Quebec, that ran the tests at Point Petrie uh, in Prince Edward County. Uh, the area had been used in the in the 30s and 40s as a firing range for anti-aircraft guns and artillery. Then when they started the Arrow program, uh, they initially were firing the Velvet Glove rockets out there, which were intended to go with the Arrow program, and then uh, Sparrow missiles, and then ultimately the Arrow model. So we're, we're looking for needles in a haystack, but more uh, needles in a haystack of needles out there. There are about five or 600 objects out in that firing range. Hmm. Uh, and would any of these models that are out in, in water and such, would they all be in the same kind of, the same uh, location? Would they all be in the same place or were they are, were they, would they be in different locations? All in the same relative area. That, that was the most important thing, I think, of our discovery that we announced on Friday. Uh, while we, of course, were very happy to find the first uh, model in uh, uh, that test series, more so, we were interested in getting the first one so we could anchor the rest of our search around that area. Right. Uh, we, we designated about 64 square kilometers uh, around the range to do the search. And having found this first one, it's going to save us a lot of time to find the rest of them. So you think that now that you've found one, you'll find more quite quickly? Yeah, I think we will. Yeah, we, we had a very productive weekend following the announcement of the discovery. We, we've already turned up about uh, 40 or 60 other missiles and rockets and other things out there. Is uh, is everything safe out there? Is anything armed? Is anything dangerous out there? No, these were all dummy uh, dummy right. tests. The, the, the planes themselves, of course, had no engines. They right. were uh, solid replicas designed for flight tests. Uh, 
uh, and the missiles that were fired either from, uh, they were air-to-air missiles and surface-to-air missiles that were fired out there, they were all dummy. And and like you said, the technology that we have today, wind tunnel testing, this sort of thing, none of this existed. So they had to come up with this in in theory and then design a prototype and experiment with it. That was the only way to move forward, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they, they did have wind tunnels, and of course they did have elementary computers, but nothing that, that, that could give them the calculations from a computer point of view. The problem with the wind tunnels is they had nothing big enough to test an actual wing design at Mach 1.7, Mach 1.8. So then they were faced with the, with the issue, okay, well, how do we test something at that speed? And they looked at firing things out of rockets and dropping them out of planes, but they couldn't get the speed they needed. So they eventually went to uh, mounting these models on uh, what are called Nike uh, booster rockets. Uh, which would get them up to speed, and then the plane would separate, and, and they would study the free flight once it separated from the rocket. Wow, it still sounds pretty primitive by today's standards, as much as it would have been extremely advanced back then. It is, and it's very James Bond. I yeah. mean, the things they were doing out there, you, you can imagine the guys running around in their white lab coats, you know, experimenting mm. with different rockets, and some of them not working, and some of them working well, and it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating piece of work that they, they did out there. So what can you tell us, John, about what you found uh, this time? What, what, what can you tell us about this piece? Uh, the, the first one we found, we, we imaged on sonar uh, about a week ago, and it, it was uh, very clearly a delta wing design. Uh, of course, the, the Avro Aero was the first delta wing design plane and, and the only one tested here in Canada, certainly. So we were pretty certain uh, that, that we had one of the models from the test program. Uh, we, we dropped an ROV into the water uh, last Wednesday and, and confirmed it with camera work. And that's the announcement that we made on Friday. What will happen to these, uh, this one and the others that you, other things that you may bring up? We're on to the second phase of the program now. Uh, we have uh, our staff archaeologist, Scarlett uh, Genesis from Tobermory, who is organizing a dive team to go and evaluate the model, uh, basically figure out how we're going to lift it from the bottom. We're working in conjunction with the Canada Conservation Institute in Ottawa, uh, who will be supervising the work and, and the conservation efforts. Uh, then once we lift the planes, which is more likely to happen next year than this year, just because of, of uh, we're basically losing the runway on, on the uh, weather right. in, in September here. Uh, they'll eventually end up in the museum, uh, the Canada Aviation Space Museum in Ottawa and the National Aviation Space Museum of Canada in Trenton. And can you tell us whereabouts in the lake they are, or close enough, or that we get a rough idea, not that we're all going looking? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> it's buried treasure. Yeah, I understand. it's buried treasure. It's, well, it's, it's buried historic treasure. Yeah, no, and I completely uh, understand that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're within that 64-square-kilometer grid. Uh, they're, they're within sort of uh, four to six kilometers from, from shore, hmm. which is based on the telemetry calculations we did when we started uh, exactly where we assumed we'd find them. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they fall well within the range. When you, when you see these things, John, when you're involved in this, do you, you know, I mean, you've been, I'm sure you've been involved in lots of expeditions where you're looking for things and what have you, but do you ever get the feeling of what could have been here? You know, I do, and, and uh, I have been involved in a lot of expeditions, but as, as, a, uh, as a geologist with a mining company, uh, you know, as I said, this is, uh, I'm used to looking for gold. This is historic gold. Uh, it, it's been a very interesting project along the way. The, the one thing that, that's really surprised me is, is how interested the Canadian public is in the story. Yeah. And how many, how many direct and, and, you know, very closely uh, indirect contacts with, with people I know downtown whose parents worked or on the program or grandparents worked on the program. Uh, I had a carpenter out of my cottage who who's the son of a man who came from England to work on the program. 
Uh, must be a lot of emotion. Like, must be a lot of emotion talking to those people that had so much invested in this. It is, and, and talking to uh, some of the surviving uh, employees from Avro and, and the, the sons and daughters, uh, a lot of these people felt like a small piece of their life had been stolen from them when the program was canceled. And you know, it was a very, a very emotional thing when they shut down the program. Uh, this might be too big a question for us to answer, but what can government, countries, industry learn from this sort of thing? Is there anything to be learned here, or is you, as you mentioned, is it just a case of discovering history and documenting it? It is certainly a case of discovering history and, and documenting it, uh, but you know, if there's something to be learned, I think from the Avro program, uh, you know, I, I prefer to re- remember what what the people achieved as as opposed to the closure of the program. Uh, it, it was a tremendous accomplishment uh, and engineering feat for, for for the time to build these planes that, that flew as fast as they did, uh, met all of the performance criteria. And again, the shame of it was closing down the program. But I mentioned earlier, I think that goes towards uh, uh, the ability to provide funding to keep these things going long enough so that they can walk on their own. Uh, Were you surprised that that the country would even embark on something like this? Like, you know, even I'm I'm thinking this was before my time, but even now I couldn't see the country embarking on such, uh, you know, on such a project. How would it have been accepted back then? How did we get there? Well, I mean, there were a lot of things that happened in the 50s and 60s that people didn't think could happen. Uh, you know, yeah, good point. Man on the Moon in, in 1960 wasn't wasn't a, a conception. It was more of a cartoon idea, right? Uh, so this was, uh, uh, you know, back to the men and women involved in, in making it possible. They were given a task that at the time seemed impossible. Uh, but really, it's an application of, of uh, ingenuity and, and, uh, and time and, and money to, to get something like the Avro Air to fly. And again, I, I think that was the tragedy of the whole program, was that they did exactly what they were asked to do, and then the program was shut down. Where do you hope to be one year from now? Uh, back looking for gold mines up in northern Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> so will, all of the, will most of this stuff be plucked by the, from the lake by next summer? You know, I, I hope so, yeah. We, we uh, are going to get as much of the survey done uh, as we can before the end of September. I suspect we, we may have a bit of grid to cover again next uh, next summer, but uh, ideally we'll start recovery efforts in, in the late spring and, and get some of these up and into the museums by next fall. Fascinating. Uh, John Brzezinski has been with us, CEO, uh, CEO of Osisco Mining and Expedition Lead for Raise the Arrow. Of course, the uh, fighter jet that was scrapped back in the late 50s uh, and, of course, leaving lots of scars emotionally and lots of evidence, not as much as we'd like, but certainly some uh, in Lake Ontario. John, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck with this. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.